turn to Nehemiah 10. Chapter 10 is about the covenant that the people of Israel made together with one another and to the Lord. And so Dawn is going to read verses 28 to 39 of chapter 10 in Nehemiah. And we want to listen and just really hear the tenor of this covenant. It was a serious commitment of the people to themselves and to God. And we really want to hear the tenor and capture the spirit of what they're committing themselves to. So, go on. This morning's reading is from Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 through 39. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Hebrews 12.1, referring to the people of God who have gone before us, reads this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set, set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. You know, we have much to learn from the people of God who have lived before us, both the Old Testament saints and those in the New Testament. And as we continue our study today in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we want to hear what these particular people of God have to say to us. You know, I, I love the narratives of the Old Testament, for in them we, we see a people much like ourselves. We see in these two books a people, first of all, they experience great revival, and they had great, at times, devotion to God. The Lord was at work stirring them up to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple and the city of God. They, they encounter an opposition to their work for the Lord, and they went through times of considerable, prolonged discouragement. And there were also times of blatant sin towards God and towards one another. But even during those times, God was working godly sorrow among many of them. We'll see that. They were not perfect examples, but in the end, through their contribution, and because of God's faithfulness, the temple was restored, the walls were rebuilt, and Jerusalem was inhabited by the people of God. Speaking of the Old Testament saints, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We want to continue to look deeply into this book and learn that which was written down for our instruction. We have much to learn and to emulate of the people of God in the book of Nehemiah and the covenant that they made together in chapter 10. And through humility and wisdom, we can learn from their story. And like them, we can serve God's purposes in our day. So let's pray. Lord, we, we do come to you today thanking you for sending your son. Lord, even during this Advent time as we focus on the incarnation and your love for us by giving us the Savior, the Shepherd King, Lord, make this a meaningful time in our lives as Christians. And Lord, today we just ask you that you would open up our hearts to see uh, how, how the people of Israel in Nehemiah served you and grant us insight into our own lives how we can do the same. Amen. Well, what, what can we learn from God's people in chapter 10? Well, here are, here are three things we, we see in the text. First, the importance of our calling. Secondly, the importance of God's word. And third, the importance of the church. And in covering these three points, I may reiterate truths that have been covered in previous teachings from this series. Have you ever noticed how the Lord likes to repeat himself? In fact, in the verses we're going to cover in point three, uh, the writer uses the same or similar phrase six times. You know, aren't you glad that God tells us things more than once? You know, parents can identify with that, right? In, in talking to your children. Sometimes you have to repeat yourself. Sometimes you have to make yourself clear. And that's what the Lord has done to us in his word. So what can we learn from the people of God in Nehemiah? Well, it's the same question 
that we ask whenever we look at the lives of believers in the Bible. What errors and sins can we avoid and what evidences of grace can we imitate and build upon? How did they imitate Christ and how didn't they? We read at the end of chapter 9 the covenant that they were about to make. So Nehemiah 9.30, it says, Because of all this, we made a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now we see covenants throughout the Bible. And here's the definition from Daniel. He wrote a paper for a leadership cohort a few years ago about covenant theology. And he said, a covenant is an agreement between two parties that define the nature of the relationship between those parties. And most of the covenants in the Bible were between God and man. And most of them were instituted by the Lord. However, in our passage today, it's the people who have initiated this covenant, in a sense, with themselves, but also with the Lord, to the Lord. They were making a solemn oath together to God. And they did that after their recounting in chapter 9 of the history of Israel and how their idolatry and sin resulted in the nation being under the earthly rule of Gentile kings. You know, in Ezra and Nehemiah, you see great times of great joy, times of great joy, but also times of great sadness and sorrow. And so um, in Nehemiah 9, 36 to 37, we see one of these times of sadness and sorrow as they're reflecting on this. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And this pact, this covenant that they entered into, that which they pledged themselves to, we want to capture that, it it was in response to this godly sorrow that they felt for the sins of Israel, both past and present, both the sins of their fathers, but their own sins. And God was at work among them. And this covenant was a way of saying, this is the way forward towards a new beginning, a fresh start at following and honoring the Lord. And it was tied into their sense of calling as the people of God. They had a small but important part to play in salvation and redemption history. And so do we. We don't want to overlook their contribution. You know, you may think that you might have an interesting or a unique journey, and maybe you do. But we, we don't want to overlook what they went through. Um, they, they were uprooted from their homes when they decided to move, right? Uh, they traveled... 900 miles to get to Jerusalem. Uh, It's like probably a four-month journey um, to Jerusalem. And they were described, the people that came back, they were described in Ezra 1, verse 5, as those who the Lord had stirred up to rebuild the house of God. He put it on their hearts. They weren't perfect, 
But God's people this side of glory never are. And we should appreciate God's grace in them as they responded to their calling, to God's calling upon them. Now in Ephesians 1, in one of Paul's prayers, he prays that we might know the hope of our calling. In fact, he actually prays that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened to the hope of our calling. It's like if you, if you walk into a dimly lit room and somebody turns on all the lights. That's how God wants us to be aware of our calling. It's imperative to know the hope of our calling. It, it, it's our identity as the people of God. And this calling for Christians is a, is a calling First of all, of salvation through Christ. It's a calling to come and be part of the people of God through the work of Christ. And secondly, our calling as God's people is to live out our faith in this world. And what we see in chapter 10 of Nehemiah is a focus on calling number two. Being a sanctified or set apart people for God in his glory. And that's the testimony in and of itself. You know, I remember when I first heard the gospel, I did not come to faith right away. But as I, as I met Christians, I knew who they were. And one of the ways I knew who they were, they were living for God. It was evident. They were living for God. And it scared me to death. <laughs> but it was evident in their life. And in a sense, that is a prophetic um, model that we give to the world. That what it means to believe and to be a follower of Christ is we're living for him. Not perfectly, but genuinely. And this is what the people were coveting to do in chapter 10. Or to actually to be. They were doing something, but they were seeking to be the people of God. Their actions were rooted in their sense of their calling as the people of God. Now every Christian has a calling as a believer. We're called to serve and build up other believers and to influence non-Christians with the gospel of Christ, both in word and in deed. And this is a high and holy calling. What we do has eternal significance in our lives and the lives of those that we minister to. And in verses 1 to 27... We see the names of the governors, the priests, and the Levites, and the chiefs or the leaders of the people. They're listed there in those verses. And I think this, this highlights the significance of leaders among God's people. We need strong, humble leaders in the body of Christ to help us fulfill the calling of God. And what we see in, in these two books, we see the godly example of two leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah. And how God used them to lead and equip and teach the people. And sometimes to reprove them. And you get to feel that both Ezra and Nehemiah were respected by Artaxerxes, the king. Because of their wisdom and their godliness. These men had a reputation with the king. I believe based on their lives and their devotion to godliness. You know, he basically gave them a blank check. He said, whatever you need, I'm going to give to you. Or he actually says, this is what I'm going to give to you. It was a lot, right? You don't give a blank check to just anybody. 
their lives demonstrated to him that they were worthy of that. He could trust them. So we need strong leaders in the body of Christ. But God's call is not only to leaders, but to each of his people. Let's look at verses 28 and 29 of chapter 10. The rest of the people, that's us. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. See, that's us, the rest of the people. You know, even under the old covenant, it wasn't just the prophets, priests, and kings that had a calling. It was all the people of God. And throughout the rest of the chapter, as you read the covenant they had written, it declares, we will do this, or we will not do this. In fact, in verse 34, it reads, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people. See, God's calling was upon all the people of God. And as we, we, as we examine that in uh, Nehemiah 10, we're, we should emulate their commitment to the Lord and to his purposes. You know, it's always been God's intention, even under the old covenant, to have a people for his own possession. It says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, a people set apart for him. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And that's true again for us in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a treasured possession. And I know there's some of you out there who say, oh yeah, that's true for everybody else, but not me. I'm not a treasured possession. Yes, you are. If you are in Christ, do not allow unbelief to keep you from that truth. Christ died for you and made you a treasured possession. And throughout both Ezra and Nehemiah, there is a deliberate listing of the names of either the individuals or the families that came back initially under Zerubbabel um, or with Ezra or those who under Nehemiah helped rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Their lives mattered. Their contribution to salvation history mattered. Their names are actually written in Holy Scripture. I read a story in World Magazine about a guy named Paul Morin. And he makes pens and writing instruments. All types of different handcrafted writing instruments. Here's what it says about him. He makes pens that look like animals. Ones that glow in the night pens. Fancy fountain pens. Whatever your interests, quirks, or preferences, Morin probably has a pen to match it. Everything from scuba diving to aromatherapy. But you know what his favorite pen is? It says in that article, 
I love big pens. They're very inexpensive. You can buy a hundred of them at Walmart. We all know about big pens, right? You have some. You bought some in 2010, right? And you still have two or three of them in your house that write. I love big pens. The master pen maker uses big pens. He's imitating our God who loves to use ordinary people like you and me. He could have used angels or archangels or raised up many more men like Charles Spurgeon or Billy Graham or women like Amy Carmichael, the great missionary to India. But he, he, he chose to call and use people like you and me. Paul taps into this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, where he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. See, God loves to use everyday people like us. Though we're not everyday people because we have the Spirit of God in us. See, the Father and the Son have come to make their home in our hearts through the presence and power of the Spirit. And when you say that, it almost, it almost feels like, wow, I'm a, like a, I'm a superhero, right? I've got God within me. Well, that's, that's not really true. Paul brings reality to our thinking in 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, we're not superheroes. We're jars of clay. And the older you get, the, love, <laughs> the more you become aware that you are a jar of clay, that you're frail, you're a weak vessel, but yet we have this treasure, this surpassing power in us. Has anyone ever, of someone of importance, made a, a point of talking with you or giving you their attention? For example, Ian McConnell, who's the president of our little denomination, Trinity Churches, Trinity Fellowship Churches. He's been here a number of times, um, and he's very outgoing. So maybe, maybe he talks to you at one of the meetings. And then the next time he's here, he remembers you. And he, he engages you and starts to talk with you. How does that make you feel? If you're honest, like, that makes you feel pretty good, right? He's talking to me, right? Somebody important. How much more that we have been called by the living God who through Christ has become our Father. That should make us feel pretty important. Oh, that we may know the hope of our calling and the glory of the one who has called us. We have a great calling in Jesus Christ and may it motivate us to live for him. Well, what else can we learn about being the people of God from chapter 10 of Nehemiah? <clears throat> well, throughout both Ezra and Nehemiah, there's an exaltation of the word of God and how it affected God's people. God's people have always been a people of the book 
And the people of Israel in our passage were no exception. Let's look at verses, verses 28 and 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land, of the lands to the law of God their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, his rules and his statutes. Now the importance of God's word has been mentioned in other sermons, and here we see it again in our text. These verses are a good description of what happens either when a person comes to faith or renews his or her commitment to the Lord in a deeper way. Through this covenant, the people are separating themselves from the peoples of the land. Not necessarily physically, but spiritually and morally and culturally. They separated themselves from the culture to what? To the law of God. To walk in it and to observe it and to obey it. And that's really what it means to follow Jesus. You know, both for the new convert and for the seasoned saint. Our true commitment to God is seen in our commitment to love and obey the commandment, the commandments that we find in God's word. Not perfectly, but genuinely. Isn't it amazing that when a person obeys the clear teaching of Scripture, that it appears to be like a radical thing to the world, or even to us, right? When we see somebody just obeying Scripture, it's like, wow. Um, And the covenant that the people entered into, it was a serious commitment. But basically, it was a covenant to obey the Word of God. They were renewing their covenant to the law of Moses and to be governed by it. At the end of Matthew 7, which is the climax of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a major teaching which Jesus lays out for his followers, what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. And he says says this. This This is a familiar passage but don't let the familiarity keep you from being affected by it. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it has been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And Jesus is promising to us that the rains will come, the floods will come, the wind will come, and the true nature of our spiritual life will be revealed through that. And we don't know when the storms of life will come to us, either individually 
or corporately as a church or even as a nation, but they will come. And our Savior is telling us that it's wisdom to hear and obey his word. It's a lifestyle of the disciple. It is a foundation to a healthy and happy and safe life. It won't keep us from the storms of life, but it will keep us from having those storms wreak havoc upon us spiritually. The commitment they made in this covenant was to all the laws of Moses. However, in their covenant, they do specify some specific commands that seem to be hot-button issues of their day. We see this in verse 30 and 31. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. See, we're called to obey all of Scripture, right? Even though, even though we often miss it, right? You know, it's, it's like when you, if you're shooting an arrow at, at a target and it misses it, right? But at least the Christian is shooting for that target. It doesn't always hit it. And sometimes it's going way off. But the true believer is actually aiming for that target, what the word of God intent is for us. The non-Christian isn't doing that at all. So we're called to obey all of Scripture. And we also need to be aware of specific, the specific ways that our culture is seeking to influence us and lead us away from obedience to God's word. There was no government laws requiring marriage to non-Israelites, and there were no laws requiring the people to trade with others on the Sabbath. But it was the world, the surrounding culture, and its values that were creeping into the life of Israel. And that's what they're addressing in that covenant. And for each one of us, we must be aware of how we are tempted to love the world and not love God. That's a temptation for all of us. We must find ways to arm ourselves with the grace of God that comes to us through Scripture as we hide it in our hearts and mind. And I just want to encourage you, whatever area that you struggle with in life, you should go and find in your Bible what it says and put it in your heart and mind and go to it often. Because it's a means of grace to you and to me. Parents, in verse 28, it mentions sons and daughters. Are you having discussions with them? Not only about what's happening in our culture, but also what's happening in their hearts. That's even more important. So how can we practically apply this call to obey all of Scripture? Well, both James and Peter in the New Testament tell us that God gives grace to the humble. I think it's one of the great promises of Scripture. So we should humbly come to God's word. We, we are dependent creatures upon the Lord. First, first in understanding what God's word says, and then secondly, to actually obey it and walk it out. 
we should put our confidence in God that he will help us to know what his word is calling us to. And then also he will give us the power to begin to obey it. Also, I think we should make time in our schedule for hearing and reading God's word and reflecting on it. We do so with an orientation to be learners and doers of the word. Because when you rush through the reading of scripture, you can rush through the practice of hearing with the ear of a disciple. James Brooke was a theologian back in the 1600s. And he said this about meditation. It is not he that reads most, but he that meditates most that will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. He said, a similar, he made a similar statement. Remember, it is not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that make that makes them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. And may we be a people who meditate on the holy and heavenly truths of Scripture. May they be like honey to us, like bread to us, sustenance to our souls. We should be reading through the Bible on a regular basis, but there is also the spiritual discipline of meditation or reflection that helps internalize the truths of Scripture. So one habit of grace would be take five minutes a day and think, ponder, ask questions about what you had just read in, in, in your Bible or about a specific passage that you're memorizing. Let's encourage you to cultivate that discipline. Well, our third point is the importance of the church. And here again, we can follow the example of the people of God in Nehemiah. Their stated commitment to the house of our God. That's a phrase that's used six times in verses 32 to 39. One of them reads the house of the Lord, but all the other ones say the house of our God. Not the house of God, but the house of our God. They had ownership. He was their God, and their, this house was, in a sense, their house as well. Now, for the Old Testament people, there was a special presence of God in the city of God, which was Jerusalem, and more specifically, in the temple that was there. Their commitment to the temple, the house of our God, mirrors our commitment in the New Testament to the church. Because under the new covenant, the temple of God is individually us, individual believers, and corporately, it's the church. You know, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, it says in Corinthians. Christ dwells with us, within us, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And there is a greater manifestation of the presence of God when the local church gathers, <clears throat> when they gather in worship and prayer, when they gather to hear God's word, when they gather for fellowship and ministry. The 
presence of God is there in a special way. There's this wonderful passage in Ephesians 2 that speaks of that. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now I think that has application to the universal body of Christ but specifically also to the local church. In our text, we see the people of God with a zeal for the house of their God. The very last verse in this passage reads, we will not neglect the house of our God. And this was very apparent when we look at our text. In it, we see their commitment to the place where God's presence and his glory was dwelling So this is verses 32 to 35. We also took on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of our God for the showbread, the regular grain offerings, the regular burn offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feast, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. These were important to the old covenant people. And for all the work of the house of our God. They were committed to it. We, the priests, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people, obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. They were they were serious, weren't they? They were zealous. And part of that word zealous in the Old Testament, it it has the connotation of, of jealous. See, they were jealous for God's glory, for his presence. And so should we, individually in our own life, that God would be glorified, but also among the church. We should be motivated by their example. For the Jewish people, the city of Jerusalem and the temple within were among their highest joys. The people who made a covenant in chapter 10 were part of those who returned from Babylon to the land of Israel. They rebuilt the temple and the walls of the city, and now they're making a commitment to work for the ongoing good of the house of their God. And in a sense, the work That work is always going on, right? As long as we live in the ministry of the local church, it's always going on. They had a commitment to work for the ongoing good of the house of their God. And so should we. May God give us the same zeal. There is a phrase that goes, think globally, act locally. And I think there's some wisdom in that for us. You know, as Christians, we should be aware of the body of Christ throughout the the earth, among all the nations. And we should pray for Christians in other countries. We should give to Christians as we can in other countries. We should even consider going to other nations on mission trips to serve and minister. And especially if you're a young person, you should actually ask, is God calling me to 
some type of mission work. Though in terms of our everyday practical involvement and connection, we should love and be committed to the local church. May God give us great zeal for God's glory and presence in our local church. Not our glory, but God's glory. Charles Spurgeon said this of the church. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give them to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? It's not that our local church or any local church is that special, except that it is the one that God has placed us in. We celebrated our 30th anniversary this, this summer as a church, and we are grateful for God's mercy to us throughout all those years. We've had our ups and downs, <clears throat> but it is still the dearest place on earth. Think about it. Our individual lives and our corporate life together are places where the presence of God is manifested in a special way. And that is a testimony to the work of our Savior. The fact that God's presence dwells among sinful, fallen people highlights the greatness and the sufficiency of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. His presence dwells among us, not because of us, but because of Christ and the presence of the Spirit in us. So how can we help contribute to our local church being part of the dearest place on earth? Well, first, we should pray. We should pray for our leaders because they need our prayers. Also, we should pray for the fruitfulness of our church's ministry, including your part in it. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Acts 2, it talks about they were devoted to prayer. We want to be like that. Second, evaluate where and how you serve in the church. You know, ministry at Cornerstone goes on in many different ways. We have many different ministry teams. Actually, too many for me to, to list right now. But we do have everything from the decorating team to the coffee team, the sound team, AV team, the greeting team, the prayer team, we have children's ministry, we have youth group, we have rangers and keepers, and many, many more ministry teams. If you want to see the complete list, just go to our website under connect, just click on connect, and there will be a link to ministry teams list, and it will show you all the ministry teams. Then there's also the 
informal or organic ways that ministry happens here. And also at a lot of other churches. Things like caring for people uh, during health issues, financial help, yard work, repairs, friendship, prayer, hospitality, transportation, encouragement, comfort, and counseling. I think that our text will call us to ask these questions. Do I serve in the same spirit and attitude that the Israelites expressed in their covenant to chapter 10? We should read that chapter and be inspired by it. Do I need to make any course corrections in my heart and how I serve? Do I need to call out to God to have the same zeal that the people had in the book of Nehemiah? And is there any new place God is calling me to serve? In asking these questions, I'm also wanting to thank you for all you presently do in serving in our church. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the example of the people of God throughout history. Lord, they're just like us, sinners in need of grace, sinners in need of a savior. Even in the old covenant, Lord, where they they didn't have the the privilege that we do of, of, of knowing the savior specifically by name and his work but we thank you for their life and their example. And we pray that the the latter house would be more glorious than the former house. We pray for your church throughout the earth, Lord, to grow, that you would add to it those who are being saved, that you would purify it, that you would bring unity to your people, that you glorify the name of your son, Jesus Christ, through and in the local church. And Lord, I thank you for all the saints here at Cornerstone, how they serve and minister. And Lord, we just want to get better at that. We want to be more fruitful in the years to come for your great glory. Give us wisdom as how we might do that.